Welcome to the Shiro Podcast, where we celebrate women in the legal profession and discuss some of the challenges and issues they face. This podcast is brought to you by the Texas Young Lawyers Association. Hi, everyone. This is the Shiro Podcast from the Texas Young Lawyers Association. In this episode, I'm your host, Eduardo Marquez. I'm an associate at Sidley Austin in Houston and an at-large director of the Texas Young Lawyers Association. Our guest today is Tracy Leroy, a litigation partner at Yeter Coleman. Tracy, good afternoon. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Eduardo. Tracy, I'm going to let you introduce yourself to our audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a partner at Yetter Coleman, which is a Houston litigation boutique. Uh, I'm a trial lawyer, and my focus is on representing companies involved in the upstream and midstream sectors of the oil and gas industry. Most of my work is advising on commercial disputes that are somehow related to oil and gas. Uh, I also do a lot of employer-side employment disputes, including non-competes, trade secrets, and discrimination claims. I do internal investigations, uh, again, mostly in the oil and gas industry, and I advise on things like employer handbooks and policy manuals. So I joined Yetter Coleman about six weeks ago. Uh, prior to joining this firm, I spent my career in large international law firms. So pretty much everything I say today comes from the perspective of a large law firm litigation partner. Uh, relevant to this podcast, when I was at my last firm, I was the head of my group, and I also headed our office's committee on the retention and promotion of women, and for several years, I ran our associates committee. I've been practicing law for 16 years, and I've practiced in three different states because my husband's job has taken us to various places. I'm married. I have two children. Uh, boys aged 7 and 12, and I have one very spoiled rescue dog. <laughs> so, um, energy litigation. Do you think that, as it is today, the energy industry is dominated by men? What about the lawyers handling um, oil and gas litigation? I'll start with the generally the industry, and, and I, I say generally, yes, the oil and gas industry is dominated by men, but... In the legal departments of large companies, I don't think that is the case. Uh, the majors and the large oil field services companies um, are thought of generally as great places for lawyers to work, and a lot of women are climbing the corporate ladder through the general counsel's office. So my in-house counsel client is more often than not a woman, but almost all the time my fact witnesses or my contacts on the business side are men. Uh, this is changing, but in most of my cases in the energy industry, I won't have any women fact witnesses in the case. Of course, for me as a trial lawyer, that makes it important for me to try to find experts or other people so that I don't have an entire roster of men on my side at trial. Um, the lawyer side is a little different. On the lawyer side, for the type of high-stakes work that the large law firms or the top boutiques handle... In litigation, there's very few women trial lawyers who are leading engagements or first sharing trials. Um, clients are asking for more diversity in their trial teams and are driving a change in this area. But for now, there, there's not a lot of us out here doing this type of work. On the employment side, however, it's very different. Um, I think employment law has always been thought of as a good place for women lawyers and particularly women litigators. Uh, for obvious reasons, a lot of clients want a woman representing them when they have a discrimination claim. And so on the employment side, you're much more likely to see women involved as attorneys. 
And you mentioned before that you grew up as a as a lawyer in large large firms in, in big law. Have your kids there and made partner there? Have you ever balance? How, how do you balance work with your family? Well, that's that's the the million dollar question that everyone asks. Um, so yeah, I was I was a big law partner. I had both of my children uh, when I was an associate. Um, before I made partner and and I have a lot of views on this so the first thing that I do and this is very important to me is that I don't apologize to anyone that I work with for the fact that I have kids and that sometimes I am not in the office or unavailable because my kids have a need that I have to deal with um, I thought about this a lot when I was pregnant with my first son that I didn't want to pretend that it was some, or act like it was a secret or negative thing that sometimes I have to be at home because I have a kid who has a doctor's appointment or I need to get them to school or whatever it is. And so from the time I had my first son, it has been my practice to, on most days, leave work around five. And I go and I do the daycare pickup. And then I get back on my computer after they go to bed. Right now, my son, my older son is old enough that he has homework. And so he does his homework and I dial back in and do some work. We spend a few minutes together. Um, we have dinner together. We spend some time together before bed. It works out for everyone. And right now, in these days with cell phones and Wi-Fi, you can really do work from about everywhere. Last year, um, my schedule was such that I spent three hours every Monday night at my kid's tennis practice. So I'd drive my kid to practice, I'd work out, and then I'd sit out there by the court at a picnic table with my Wi-Fi and my laptop and my phone, and I would get two hours worth of work done. And it was great because it got my kid where he needed to be, um, helped me deal with my family obligations, and no one ever complained to me that I wasn't physically in my office. It happened yesterday. I had to take over carpool for my husband. So I had to leave here at 3.30 yesterday to go get my kids where they needed to be, but nobody notices because I'm on my email and I'm getting my work done. And the kind of corollary to that, to the not apologizing for the fact that you sometimes have obligations, is that I don't apologize to my kids for the fact that I work and for the fact that sometimes my work means that I cannot give them my full attention every minute of the day. My kids grew up with two working parents. They've been going to daycare um, or school their whole lives and they've never given me any grief or any guilt for not being the mom who can drop by the school a any guilt on that doesn't come from my children and overall for my family and for me my working is an enormous plus and it's not something I do at the expense of my family a the other answer to this and the kind of the easy answer is that I have a I have a, a husband a, a partner whose job is generally very very flexible and most often if we have a crisis he can be at home but there is this internal guilt I think that mothers face that fathers tend not to I, I think that when you become pregnant or when you we first have a child mothers get conditioned very early on that it's your responsibility and not the father's or the other uh, family member's responsibility to deal with the day-to-day -day issues, to interface with teachers and make sure they have clothes that fit and all that sort of stuff. And, and all the articles call this the second shift, right? That working mothers go home and they have a whole other shift at work. And there's this expectation of the other important people in your kid's life, and, and for me that's school, Um, that the mother is always the person in charge and the person you have to call. And so for the last 12 years, since I've had my first son, when I fill out the emergency contact forms, I always put down my husband as the person they should call first, and they never, ever do. 
So I've adapted to that by knowing that if I'm going to trial or if I'm going to be traveling somewhere where I'm not reachable, I will call the school and have them put a special note that says, no, no, I really mean it. Call my husband (laughs) (laughs) and not me. (laughs) And I will say too, you know, as a trial lawyer, every trial lawyer is going to have some point where they have to do a very long trial. And for me so far, my biggest instance of that was when my older son was two years old and I was out of town on a trial for six solid weeks. And that was very difficult on my husband. I don't think my kid really noticed, but my husband, that was a lot on him. But it really doesn't happen that often. And so you you just kind of learn what works for you. And, you know, with my example of yesterday, it changes every day, depending on what your family needs or what's going on at work. And um, what advice do you have for young lawyers? I have more advice than can fit in this podcast, but... (laughs) I'm going to start with with what I think is the biggest mistake and something that I wish I had done when I was first starting out in a big law firm right out of school. I think that young lawyers, um, they tend not to think about the end game, to think about where they want to be when they're 10 or 15 years out of school. And speaking for a a practitioner in in a private law firm, in my view, the most important thing and the thing that you should be driving for to protect yourself and to drive up your value is ultimately you want to have business of your own and clients that will routinely and repeatedly call you to help them. And that's not something that magically shows up when you make partner. So from the very beginning, I think that lawyers need to start consciously making choices to build a network that will get them business and help them build business and obtain clients at the same time, and, and, and I think this is just as important as building your, your technical skills and your abilities. I mean, everyone needs to learn how to do excellent work. That's a given. But there's a reason why so many people um, don't make partner in big law. And a lot of it has to do with not having planned ahead and really thought about how they are going to be the people leading and bringing in the business at the end of the day. Yeah, I agree. And we, we hear that a lot, you know, networking and be able to um, to get out there and, and start meeting the people that will end up building the relationship for you. So how how can a young lawyer, what can a, long, a young lawyer do to lay, lay out that groundwork? I think that um, thematically the biggest idea that I'd like to put out there is that young lawyers need to be assertive and purposeful about taking control of their careers themselves and not letting their firm or their partner mentor or whoever it is direct their career. So at some point, and it usually doesn't happen, you know, your first year, but at some point you'll start to get a choice about what kind of things you work on and who you work with. And what I have found to happen is that you'll find out who you work with and then all of a sudden that person's practice is going to get interesting to you because you'll get good at it. And once you've done one type of matter, you'll do another one just like it and you'll get some expertise and that's exciting. Um, But once you get to the point that you can pick, you should think about it. Think about, okay, well, is working for one partner going to help me develop a skill that I don't already have or is it going to expose me to a group of people that I'm not already exposed to? Or, on the other hand, is becoming the right-hand person of this other partner going to help me grow? 
um, or right-hand person of a senior associate. And, and when you find those people, and everyone finds them, I know the, the firms tend to assign mentors, but sometimes and, and usually you'll also have either through those programs or organically, you'll grow relationships with people that you work with and who like to work with you. Ask those people for advice about what kind of groups you should be joining, how you should be spending your non-billable work time. And a key point is that if you do join something, if someone says, oh, you should get involved in the Texas Young Lawyers Association, that doesn't mean just join it right? That means get on a committee. Do what you're doing, Eduardo. <laughs> I mean, lead a committee and, and not just be a passive member because just being able to list something on your bio, it doesn't get you anywhere. But the people that you're meeting now through Twyla and through other organizations, who knows where those people will be in 10 years, right? And who knows if those people are going to need help or know someone who needs help that can, again, help drive your business. And this stuff, it doesn't pay off right away, but it does. I have a great personal example where um, several years ago, I mean, back in like 2010 or 2011, my I was an associate and my firm asked me to join and to get more involved in a group that I had joined and was passively sitting as a member in, in um, called the Women's Energy Network, which is something that an organization I'm very involved in now and have been for a number of years. And so the firm came to me and said, listen, we want you to get involved in this. They have a charity lunch, and we want you to get involved in this charity lunch because the firm wants to be more um, outwardly supportive of this organization. And uh, I am very passionate about promoting women in professional workplaces. I'm very passionate about it in law firms as well as in the energy industry. And so it was something that I, I was interested in. So I joined it, and I get, and, and you know, I know that given my time crunch, there was one specific committee that I was like, oh, that's the committee I should be on. So I tried to join the committee and I ended up accidentally becoming chair of the committee. Um, but I met through that work, a woman who was the head of that lunch that year. We became friends. 10 years later, She's a valued client of mine as well as a friend. She sends me business. She tells her friends about me. And I've enjoyed not just the personal satisfaction of having this friendship with someone I really care about and respect, but also there's a professional benefit too. And I would never have known that back in 2010 or whenever I first joined, got involved in the organization. But if you start, it pays off and you just have to kind of keep at it. Another thing that, that I've heard from a couple of lawyers who are friends of mine who have their own firms, who I respect very much, is to, to get out of your office and go to lunch. And I think associates tend to get stuck in the trap of ordering from wherever is the place that delivers. With me, it was always Jimmy John's every day, and you, you power through your lunch. Ten minutes. I know you do it. it. <laughs> And you sit in your office, you get your work done, you're billing your hours, and that's great. But if you can, if you don't have something due that is literally requiring you to be there, go to lunch with somebody. And it can be someone in your office. It can be someone you know from law school. It can be some client. I mean, just get out there and meet people. Now, where I am now, it is an important part of my job to be out there talking to people. And so in the six weeks since I joined my law firm, I have eaten lunch in my office one time. And it's been very valuable to me to be out there talking to clients, to spending time with my new partners, 
um, meeting with friends, and, and, and it, it ultimately will pay off. And that includes, by the way, taking the time to go to lunch with people that aren't business friends, but people that are your, the people that support you emotionally, um, people that fill your cup, right? You, you need to make sure that you're making time to keep those connections because at some point you will really need them and you want that in your life. Um, something else I, I think that women associates particularly need to watch out for is the firm administrative time suck. And what I mean by that is the committees. Um, I think women associates, and in particular women partners, are expected to and have to shoulder uh, more than their share of the burden of committee work and in mentoring younger lawyers and summer associates when they are at large firms. And this is this is understandable. This is a, the firm's desire to diversify their committees. Um, younger women lawyers want to work with more experienced women lawyers, and they want to build those relationships. And all of those things are admirable, and, and they should happen. But what you're left with is an unfair burden and sometimes an overwhelming burden on the few women to sit on every committee, to go to every recruiting event, to be the person showing the firm's diversity. So if you are that person, you should think about how many years it will be useful to you, either because you enjoy it and it fulfills you emotionally or because it helps your career to do this. And once you've established yourself as a team player and as someone who cares about the firm and who's committed to it and who's a good mentor, at some point, there's no shame in rolling off of that because you have other things you need to do for your practice, for the firm, for your clients. Um, and, And I think that's something where people tend to get trapped by the idea that if someone asks them to be on some non-billable committee, they have to say yes. But that, again, is something to talk about with your mentors about politically, is this something I have to do? Because it's your time, and and we bill by the six minutes. Our time has real worth. Um, In my own life, and I I just kind of crystallized this recently, I was talking to a a woman who's applying to law school this week, and I was like, this is really how I'm trying to live my life, and and now I'm really trying to do it since I said it out loud, and now I'm going to say it's on this podcast, so now I'm absolutely committed. (laughs) (laughs) Is that my rule is... um, if I'm going to do something that is not for a client who is paying me to do it or someone who is, you know, I'm pitching to or something, if I'm going to spend my time, whether this is work or personal, doing something, it has to be either important to me personally or it has to ultimately have dividends that will pay off towards my business. Because if I have extra time, I need to be spending it with my family or with my friends. And so... If people ask me to do a lunch or to sit on a board or to do, say, a podcast, (laughs) um, if it's not something that I am really interested in doing and willing to spend my time doing or if it won't help me in business, then I am trying to say no. And so a good example for that is pro bono work. I've done a lot of pro bono work. I used to run a pro bono committee for a number of years, and I have supervised people doing everything under the sun pro bono and I love it I love the dedication I love the way that the firms in this state support pro bono but for me after spending lots of years doing pro bono for um, people speaking uh, seeking asylum and veterans and children I've picked my one pro bono client and for me it's the Houston SPCA and I'm consciously focusing on that work Um, and I'm doing it for a couple of reasons. I mean, it's an organization I support. I believe in their mission. I got my dog through them. 
and I love my dog. <laughs> um, and when I work for them, I don't resent it. I don't feel like it's taking away from other things I could be doing. And also emotionally, it's not as trying on me as it was when I was representing children seeking asylum, it, which I found very emotionally draining. Um, the Women's Energy Network, which I already talked about, is sort of the same thing. Uh, I've, I've had a bunch of leadership positions with that organization, and I do it both because it's tangibly helped my business, but I also believe in its mission. Um, because of what I've experienced as a lawyer and, and my history being now the, the rare, you know, sadly rare big law firm partner, um, I feel an obligation and also a very strong desire to be involved and, and lend whatever I can to groups that promote women professionals and promote opportunities and leadership for women. Um, and so I will take time away from my family and, and my office to go to those events and to serve in leadership. And I mean, honestly, it's, it's one of the reasons I'm here today. So one of my kids is off school today and that kid and my husband are off from what I can tell, having a great time going to lunch and playing tennis and enjoying the afternoon. And I could be working flexibly from home today, but the fact that Twyla is doing these podcasts, I think is important. And if I, if, my comments can give anybody a little bit of insight. I, I want to give my time for that. And lastly, and this is, I think, overall, if you can help somebody else, help them. I spend a lot of time um, talking to clients on the phone about things that either aren't my area of expertise or that I can't give them a snap opinion on because it's really not what I do. And, and so if someone calls me and says, oh, I've got this tax issue... I'm going to help them find a tax lawyer. I've helped clients. Uh, I've, I've recommended my realtor to people. I've helped people, you know, I've talked them through all sorts of different things. You know, I've given free legal advice on non-competes to more people than I can count. And I want to do that. Like that, again, helping others, it, it, using your degree and using what you've learned to help others is, is part of the joy of being a lawyer. And it makes it feel sometimes... Um, it can be just as satisfying as getting a very complicated deal signed or that sort of thing. I mean, someone told me a couple of years ago that the best feeling in the world is when a client calls you up and says, you know what, I want you to be my face in front of this jury. You know, I want you. And, it, and they're right. When that has happened to me, it is the most flattering thing in the world. And it makes all the hours out there at cocktail parties and at lunches and the time away from my family, it makes it worth it. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes as lawyers, we forget how, um, like you said, using our degree or just putting some of our work for other people can change their lives. Yeah. And, uh, and we completely forget that, you know, we can make a big change with sometimes very little of our time. Well, and, and you saw it in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, right? There, there was a lot of need at shelters related to insurance claims, and it wasn't really legal work. It was people who are trained like we are to carefully read a form and to fill it out and to, and, and I see it, you know, I'm the only lawyer in my family. And so I see it when people are doing their estate planning and, it's, and I'm not an estate planner, but I can certainly read a document closely and any lawyer can. Or just read it. Or just read it <laughs> before I sign it. You know, I, I read contracts. That's what I do. So, so I, I think that, that it's one of those things where, I think lawyers often don't understand how useful they can really be, even when you're not doing what you do every single day on a billable, um, 
a billable basis. You can really help people just by being someone who's naturally taught to think critically and to pay attention to detail. Yeah, and Tracy, what would you tell other women that want to become litigators? Do you think there's an advantage or disadvantage of being a woman litigator? I think there's some advantages and some disadvantages. Um, and this is a very hot topic <laughs> in the legal press. Um, there's been a lot of interesting articles about it in the past year. But I will say from my experience that people do react to you and, and treat you differently. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. I've had a lot of fun with noticing how, um, in certain circumstances, my own partners will treat me differently than they'll treat male partners around my same vintage. Um, witnesses and opposing counsel and judges will, will treat you differently on occasion. I've been called lots of names in court. A lot of the times it's, you know, honey or sweetheart or, you know, darling or whatever. Sometimes it's not that nice. Um, most judges are now aware enough that of this and how demeaning it can be to tell opposing counsel not to do that, but it, it happens and we're, we're in the South and honestly, at the end of the day, I don't think it's ever made a difference to any argument I've made. Um, I do notice when I try cases and I've never tried a case with a woman as my co-counsel, it's always been me and a, and a man, um, at the end of the day, you know, after the jury comes back with their verdict, you you often get the chance to talk to the jury. And every time you can, it's a great educational experience. But nine times out of ten, when the jury's talking to me, they want to talk about personal stuff. Like, I, I tried a bunch of cases when I was pregnant with my last kid, and so everybody wanted to know about my pregnancy. How far along I was, what I was having, you know, if I felt okay, like, all... And they'd stared at me for two weeks, so it's kind of understandable, but... They didn't want my male partner. They all wanted to talk about the witnesses. <laughs> and I, I saw that even when I wasn't pregnant. Like, I'll have jurors be like, I really liked your, your, your shoes or I really liked your suits. And with the, my, my male partners, no one's ever like, I really like your tie, right? <laughs> it, they just don't. They, they don't talk about them that way. Um, but I also think it helps me with witnesses. Witnesses will tell me things they won't tell a male partner Um, I can get away with some slightly probably more aggressive questions in court because I'm, I'm generally seen as non-threatening. Um, and you do, you stand out a little bit more. Um, there are, way back in my career, I was widely known around town as that gal who worked with a certain partner. Not in Houston. This was before I was in Houston. Um, but it is, it is interesting. Like, I, I'm... The thing is, there's there's not that many of us, and um, it is surprising how, I mean, we, we kind of, the women who do the kind of work I do, I know them all either personally or sort of by name or reputation, and I feel like I know them well because it is a small group in Houston. Um, but ultimately, I think it's something that, uh, you know, you have to embrace and go with it. I mean, I think every woman trial lawyer has got stories about gendered remarks and about judges with special dress codes and I get mistaken for a court reporter about once a year, still, when I go to take a deposition. But, you know, now, um, in this political climate, uh, in the post-Me Too movement, in, in an era where judges, and including our, our bench here, have been very active about saying, we want to hear from more women in court, we want you to have young women associates arguing, we don't want to see an older male partner doing an argument while the woman just passes him notes because he doesn't, he didn't write the brief and she did. Um, there's more and more opportunities for women coming up in the practice. And I think that um, 
you know, my experience now is not going to be the experience of someone else in 10 years. And, and I reject absolutely, definitively, completely the idea that juries aren't going to like or trust women because they're women lawyers um, or that a client needs to think about a woman a woman's gender as indicative of what a jury will think of her I think that's absolutely wrong I don't think juries make their decisions based on whether they liked the lawyer or whether they thought the lawyer should be working or not working um, I think that if they don't trust a lawyer maybe they won't go your way but that's a, a general issue, right? Trial lawyers, you, you, you can't really fake who you are in front of a jury. But I've been so gratified every time I've tried a case at how seriously jurors take their role, no matter what the case was. And it always heartens me the amount of effort that I see them putting into hearing and deciding a case. And, and there was a very famous article that came out a few months ago about this where a woman trial lawyer who teaches trial advocacy was talking about how she teaches her women students to act differently. And there was this terrific rebuttal that was written by a, a trial lawyer in California in which she said, you're doing them a disservice. You tell them to be as aggressive as they need to be to defend their client. And I, I think that's absolutely the case. Like I've never held back or worried about it. I might dress a certain way, but I don't question differently. Um, one fun story that I like to tell on this front is when I uh, tried a case when I was eight and a half months pregnant, um, my hands were swollen from the pregnancy and I couldn't wear my wedding rings. And I had just not been wearing them, you know, because I didn't want my finger to be cut off. And so um, at some point I, we were going to trial and I realized this and I talked about this with my client who was a woman who herself was a trial lawyer. And I, and I told her, I was like, listen, I, I think i got to go buy a fake wedding ring. I don't think I can show up at trial eight and a half months pregnant and not have my rings on. And she said, you know, totally up to you. I hate that we even have to think about this. And so I did a poll on Facebook. And I asked my Facebook friends, I was like, do I, you know, let's say you're a juror and one of the lawyers is extraordinarily pregnant and not wearing a wedding ring. And every single lawyer friend said, yes, go buy one. And every single non-lawyer said, that is stupid. And I did go buy one, and it was really fun to go to Walmart and talk to the lady at the jewelry counter and say, I need something that looks like a wedding ring. <laughs> and I still have it. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, that's the kind of thing that, that women just have to think about, I think, a little differently. But I, I just enjoy my job so much that I don't think any of that should discourage you or should make you feel nervous about it. I think, I think there are tremendously effective women trial lawyers everywhere, and that's only going to increase as more and more women graduate from law school, as more and more stay at firms um, for you know, 20, 30 years, like I plan to. Um, thanks, Tracy. Now on uh, our last three questions that are uh, questions that we ask to all of our um, Shiro's. Um, did you have any Shiro's growing up? So I, I've thought a lot about this, and um, I think that, that what happened to me, I grew up, most of the adult women that I knew when I was a kid were either stay-at-home parents or were teachers. My mother's a teacher. Um, most of my friends' parents were either teachers or did not work outside the home. And, and the very first woman that I got to know well, who was... Um, who had what I would call a very clear 
powerful job was a woman whose name is Martha Braddock. I'm going to call her out. Um, Martha was my boss for three summers when I was in college, when I was an intern at the Congressional Affairs Office for FEMA. And Martha was the director for the Office of Congressional Affairs, which is a political appointment, um, an important job. And she's this, uh, she's from Texas, actually. This was in D.C., but she is from Texas. And she was always dressed in very conservative, lovely suits and always had her hair done and her makeup on. And she has, she has a very Texas accent. She's very polite, but she was hard as nails. And she was a terrific manager and dealt with very angry members of Congress and very irritable people because FEMA deals with natural, or they at the times before it got reorganized, but they dealt with natural disasters. So when someone's district has been flooded, they are not happy if they are not getting their money quickly or their help quickly. It's a very tense place. But watching her manage in that um, very high-pressure environment, it, it affects it affected me. And, and I distinctly remember before law school interviews, um, for, for 2L summer jobs, going out and going to the outlet mall and buying a suit and putting it on and looking myself in the mirror and being like, I am dressed like Martha right now and buying my very first coach briefcase, remembering her giant coach purse that she carried. Um, and I, I don't know if she knows how much of an influence she was on me, but she was the first professional woman that I saw just manage a workplace. Um, I also, I I was telling you before we turned on the microphone, when I was in college, um, I took a semester off and interned at the Supreme Court of the United States. And I was in um, a program where I was under the Chief Justice's jurisdiction. And at that point, Justice O'Connor was still on the court. Uh, And she invited me to join the aerobics class that she used to host. If you read The Brethren, you'll hear about the gym in the Supreme Court. It's a basketball court. It's above the courtroom, so it's the highest court in the land. You know, ha-ha. So at the time, when Justice O'Connor was on the court, she paid an aerobics instructor to come and teach aerobics to her and some of her friends and some senators' wives and all of the women clerks in the building. And she invited a few of the women interns, and I was one of them. And so I spent some actual time with Justice O'Connor and got to speak to her while I was applying for law school. And um, I also got to meet Justice Ginsburg, but did not get to spend as much time with her. But just watching her knowing, I mean, every single day, knowing that she is the first, right? The first one Supreme Court Justice. Like, everything she does is in some measure historic. It was fascinating to me and very inspiring. Um... And I, 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 I was just very, it made me really excited to go to law school. And now you're a shiro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we can talk about that term later. <laughs> so um, as a shiro, what advice would you give to other female lawyers? Um, you know, I, I've talked a lot about it, but two things that I just want to highlight. Um, when I was, every time I've, I've changed jobs... I've done a lot of due diligence on it, I think, as everyone does. But I've realized that they're a group of, of, you know, for me, it's seven or eight people, men and women, um, friends and mentors that I've known for a number of years that I always go to for advice and that I won't make a move if they don't think it makes sense because they know me, they know my work, they know that sort of thing. 
And I also have people that on the personal side, if I'm having, if I'm having some issue with, you know, my kids or something like that, that likewise, these are the people that I always go to and, and value their input. And so think, and in my head, I, I almost conceptualize it as my own personal board of directors, right? These are the people that I trust, I, I value, I value their discretion, I value their opinion. And, and these are relationships that are built over decades. But um, think about think about that. Like professionally, you want to have more than one person in your in your corner and more than one person that you can go to. And that's inside or outside your firm. It can develop. I mean, I, you know, some of those people are, are people that are my clients. Some of them are people that are my friends who are lawyers who have I've never worked with. Some of them are people I worked with for over ten years. Um, but think about that concept as you as you make decisions about how to grow and where to grow. And then the last thing, and I want to say this because of the the Shiro label, you know, I've I've been thinking about this podcast for a while, and I really appreciate that Twyla is doing this series. I really wish it wasn't something they thought was necessary. Um, when I graduated from law school the statistics of men and women in school were 50-50 people going to school. And at that time, the percentage of women partners in the big law firms was about 20-21%. And now, 16 years later, that percentage is like 23-24%. And it's been a long time. So when I graduated, you know, everyone thought, oh, by the time you guys are partners, it'll be 50-50. And we have not made that progress. I think that right now there, we are at a turning point where firms are looking at flexibility and ways to retain the legal talent they are losing. I think that is going to benefit the profession and everyone else. But I still think that if you are someone who is in that culture and wants to stay in that culture, you owe it to not just yourself, but to everyone around you to do your part for other women to mentor them, to lead them, to participate in women's groups, to, find what you are comfortable with contributing so that in another 15 years the statistics aren't like a two percent change but also because i can tell you that some of my biggest satisfactions as a lawyer have been watching my associates bloom people that don't work for me anymore but that are off doing amazing things and it really makes it you know the fact that you we're able to, to help somebody, again, help somebody achieve a goal of theirs is a really satisfying thing, both on a professional and a personal level. Thank you, Tracy. Um, I, I agree, and I think, I think that what we've heard today is a great piece of advice for men, women, boys, and girls. So, uh, <laughs> Thank you, Eduardo. <laughs> so I'm, sure, I'm sure someone listening will definitely, uh, you, have, you will definitely touch touch him or her in a, in a very significant way. Um, so uh, we've come to the end, and thank you all for listening to this Shiro podcast of the Texas Young Lawyer Association. Don't forget to check, it out, check out all other episodes available on our website, tyla.org, and wherever you get your podcast. If you have a topic that you want to hear about, email us at tyla at texasbar.com or send us a tweet at, at Texas Young Lawyers. Um, you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. We hope to see you back here for another episode. And remember, not all sheroes wear capes. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please support the work we're doing by liking the Texas Young Lawyers Association's Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at Tex Young Lawyers. 
and tune in for our next episode on Wonder Women Wednesday.